The following message is from the 2014 IBCD Summer Institute, Making Peace with the Past. Father in heaven, you own all things and everything we have is yours. Help us to be stewards of what you've given us. Help us to be wise in this area of finances, to exalt you in all things. I pray that as men may come, women may come with particular questions today that we could provide helpful answers from your word. We thank you for the perfect sufficiency of your word and we ask that you would encourage us in that and help us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, this is a huge topic and what Craig has asked me to do is to focus on regrets about the past. We had a whole spring seminar where I spent a whole day covering essentially what's in your outline where I took several hours. If you want to get some things you're going to say, boy, you're going over that really fast, Jim. Well, if you want to be here till six, I can do everything on your outline. But my focus is going to be on the very thing that dealing with major counseling issues that come up again and again with finances, not teaching you comprehensively, and especially as it has to do with regrets over the past. And I've put Steve's four buckets up there, at least that's what that chicken scratch is. I didn't go to Tom's class on how to make a nice, neat whiteboard. Um, I'm disabled in that way. But part of what I'm gonna to try to do is just as you look at people, I think in counseling them, as I was kind of gridding what I have in here with what Steve was teaching, it's so helpful to take Steve's grid that he taught last night and he's gonna to continue tonight to process these financial issues that people face and to help them understand it in that way and then to act wisely. Uh, we live in very challenging times right now. And most of us are aware of that. The, the rate of unemployment, the, the low workforce participation rate, the difficulty of running a business, the difficulty of investing money and getting a return for those who want to retire, there has been a drop in the standard of living over the last several years in terms of just the median income has dropped. And our nation faces crisis, the individuals and the you know, families face crisis. And a large percentage of counseling cases, people are having financial trouble. Actually, one of the reasons it actually saved us time 20 years ago when George start, stopped charging for counseling is we didn't have to wait 15 minutes, we didn't have to waste 15 minutes trying to hear from the counseling why they couldn't afford what we were charging anyway. Because in part of their life being all messed up is they had no money, they were all in all kinds of debt. So we, we get an extra 15 minutes in every session, at least the first session now, uh, because of that. Most financial problems are caused by a failure to follow biblical principles. And like in, in Steve's chart here, uh, some of us are suffering financially because Somebody did something to us, <laughs> and some of us are suffering because we've done foolish things. And then many of us have compounded that problem by doing more foolish things. I guess I'll give you an illustration. A man uh, was not pursuing his work enough. He's an independent contractor kind of guy, and he was a bit lazy. He's way behind on his mortgage. And so he comes to me actually with his wife. They're both pretty upset. And what happened is when he got behind, he read some book about how you can win at blackjack at the casino and a system that was guaranteed to work. And so he had gone, you know, he had, he had done something wrong. 
And then he responded badly by making it worse. And the way the wife found out about it was not him confessing, but by the credit card companies calling and saying, you owe us a huge amount of money, where is uh, the money? And she asks him, and finally it all comes out. And it was like he'd caught, been caught in adultery, I and mean, it, was, it was tough. So usually financial, I mean, I guess sin will be the cause of all. If we weren't in a fallen world, none of us would be short of money. Sometimes we're innocent victims where you did a great job planting your field and the tornado wiped it out or the flood or the famine or the pestilence of the locusts. Uh, or I think one way it really in terms of innocent suffering is a wife who depends upon her husband and he makes foolish decisions with investments or in his career like the wife in that story. But even then she has the choice. Am I going to respond well or am I going to respond badly to this trial? Uh, a very important thing in tr when it comes to finances, it's true of all counseling, it's one of the last, like talk about like walking away from a conference remembering one or two things like we said in the last session. Probably 15 years ago or more, Jay Adams was here and he talked about legalism and counseling. And I still have a takeaway from that that has just been emblazoned in my brain. And that is that we can never require more of people than the Bible does. And to distinguish as counselors between thus says the Lord and here's a way to do it. And so as much as I would like to make everybody buy a copy of Quicken or use Mint.com to make a budget, or I'd like this guy to go apply at the Walmart for a greeter job because I think that's kind of his level of expertise or whatever, I, cannot, I can tell people work. I can tell people debt is a bad thing. But there's a danger of legalism in counseling when you start telling people to do what the Bible doesn't require. So distinguish between thus says the Lord and here's a way to do it. Now with finances, since so much of what talks about finances are in the book of Proverbs, you've got another factor is there's a difference between commands and wisdom. Okay, I can tell you what's about the most stupid thing you can do according to the book of Proverbs when it comes to money. Cosign alone. The experienced biblical counselor. I've, I've counseled people who have co-signed. I've counseled people who thought they were going to co-sign. I can't put somebody to church discipline for co-signing. I can just say the reality of this is they may take your bed from you in the middle of the night, and they may take your cloak from you. you know, bad things may happen, but it's not a command from the Bible, don't do it. It's just saying this is really a bad idea, like other kinds of debt, as opposed to don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Those are disciplinable offenses. But again, very important, distinguish between commands and principles of wisdom and commands and different ways you can meet the command, different ways you can keep the command. If you start micromanaging people's lives, you've taken the place of Scripture. The Scripture is sufficient, you are not. Make it very clear. This is a way to do it, and some people need that. I've sat down with people, and with my spreadsheet, we're going to make a budget for you, and I'll help you. But I, I want to keep saying, realize, I can't tell you, thus says the Lord, $100 no more for your cell phone or you can't afford a smartphone. I can kind of say, debt's a bad idea. You're making $3,000 a month. You got to make the amount you spend equal to that. I, I can kind of push that based on biblical principle. But I can't say, well, you can or can't have cable TV, how often you can eat out. If you want a suggestion, I'll give it to you. So broadly speaking, uh, with money, you need to get money. You spend money. You've got debt, and you've got savings, four broad categories. And I'm going to just hit 
those very broadly. Very common problem, counselee comes in, he doesn't make enough money. <laughs> Ever seen that one? Yeah, it's, it's pretty common. The book of Proverbs is very simple on this subject. You work smart and you work hard. And it's a multiplier. You work hard and you work smart. The hand of the diligent makes rich, Proverbs 10, verse 4. The person who works really hard, works more hours, asks for overtime, looking for work, he will have more money than the sluggard. But also, Proverbs 29, 22, 29, do you see a man skilled in his work, he will stand before kings. Diligence, but time's effort. If you are unskilled, you're going to make about $10 an hour if you can find a job as the Walmart greeter or as a gopher at Home Depot or something. If you have a degree in, as a cardiac surgeon, you're going to make a whole lot more money than that per hour. You may make $500 for certain hours of work or $1,000 or you're going to have a $500,000 a year income. There are functions for which people are willing to pay more. If, if a Walmart greeter quits, they can always find another one who will do it for $10 an hour. But you have to pay more for someone who's more skilled. And 3,000 years ago, the Bible says this. Okay, now you get to regrets. How do I deal with my past? Well, some people have no job because they've been lazy. And all that the Bible says about the sluggard, Proverbs 6, go to the anto sluggard. I will tell you that you know, they're, like they're talking about different counseling cases. You like conflict between Christians because biblical peacemaking solves it. It's just amazing to see what the gospel does quickly in that case. I hate counseling sluggards. Proverbs, I think, describes the sluggard as about the toughest, nastiest, you know, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and he won't bring it to his face. The sluggard says there's a lion in the streets full of excuses. And you see these guys... And this is an admonish the unruly type of situation. I can't change a sluggard, but I have to admonish a sluggard. And there are sluggards, but they're not going to admit they're sluggards. I've never heard a guy, I've had a couple people say, yeah, I know I'm lazy, but full-blown sluggards are generally incredible excuse producers. If they would work it hard, as hard at working as they worked at avoiding work, they would be very successful. But you have to be willing to call, call them on it. And so... Sluggards need to be admonished. Uh, they are guilty, guilty <laughs> in our grid there. Uh, the person I pity is the wife of a sluggard, or even the husband, especially the wife. I have seen men, male sluggards, who need to be admonished. I think sometimes church discipline may be necessary in these cases, but it's tricky because they're slippery. And again, there's a thousand excuses. One excuse that I personally will not accept is, well, God has called me to something else other than providing for my family. I'm spending all my time in ministry. Well, the first, first Timothy 5 says, if you don't provide for your own family, you're worse than an infidel. Um, sluggards are a problem. But there's another thing, and this would be another regret. Okay, somebody's 35 years old. They barely finished high school. No education after that. They have no skills. Is there blame there? Probably, Right? When you had your chance, when you were in high school and you could have gotten vocational training, you could have worked harder, when you were in college and you partied, or you didn't go to college, you, you wanted just quick money working at Starbucks so you had enough money to have a nicer cell phone and go out to eat more while you lived with your parents, and now you're 30, 35 years old and you have no marketable skills and you're not worth any more than a high school junior, 
in the marketplace. That is guilt. You're wrong. Okay, now you can respond poorly or you can respond well. You can respond well and say, I need to get some skill. I need to, from where I am now, and this is tricky as a counselor, but you can say, okay, um, and sometimes it's sitting down hard as a husband and a wife, okay? He's worth $12 an hour. There's nobody on the planet who will pay this man more than $12 an hour based on the skills that he has. He's got a wife, she's got a child, she's expecting another. What's he going to do? He needs to figure out a way to make more than $12 an hour. Now, a bad response would be somebody should just pay me that, whether I'm worth it or not. The government, my parents, whatever. A godly response is, what can I do to have stand-before-king skills? And now that can be very personal, a personal evaluation. What are you good at? Are you good with your hands? Are you good with computers? Are you good with numbers? It can be research. The king searches things out. Well, search out. Who, who is making $30 an hour in this economy? What jobs that pay $30 an hour or $60,000 a year are the shortest path from where I am right now? You could say, well, you could go to college and get a four-year degree and then get a two-year degree and then you could... That may not be in the cards if your wife is expecting and there's a toddler running around your house to take six years off and that gets you into the debt topic after that, right? But there may be vocational training. So, but, you know, that's not really what I wanted to do. <laughs> I've always wanted to be a pilot. I've always wanted to be a preacher, whatever it may be. Does the book of Proverbs speak to that? Yes, it does, in a few different places. And I've just got one in mind. If I can find it real quick, 2819 is one of the places. He who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty and plenty. We live in a fallen world. And this applies both to the sluggard and the unskilled. Not everybody gets to do something they love and to live in a nice house and to have a nice lifestyle. Some people have to do things that are hard with thorns and thistles. And the quality of a man is to do whatever it takes to provide for his family. And that may be doing something he hates for a while. Again, what do you do? Acquire more skill. Find something you'd like to do and, and work at that. But some, again, when you're working with a counselor, I mean with a counselee, uh, this is a big deal. So if, if you're not making enough money, uh, gain more skills. And then, well, what about someone who's lost their job or who has no job? Uh, Brian is the expert on Ecclesiastes. I just have one or two verses from Ecclesiastes today, but mine is Ecclesiastes 11.6. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both alike will be good. Okay, you, agrarian illustration. I'm not that smart a farmer, but I can get the picture. You, not all seed produces corn or whatever you're trying to grow. So what do you do? You sow lots and lots of seed. Do you not see people who you talk to the person who may be a bit of a sluggard or you're concerned about that? And he says, well, I found this company I'd like to work for and I emailed them my resume and I'm waiting to hear from them. That is folly. Uh, the reality is that's probably not going to work out. You need to sow lots and lots of seed. I mean, the reality is, if it's going to take 500 contacts to get a job, if you make only one per week, you're going to be unemployed for 10 years. And people need to be admonished, don't be a sluggard when it comes to pursuing a job. Your job is to get a job. 
Now, some of this is kind of in the realm of common grace. What works? The Bible doesn't explicitly say what works, but generally speaking, sending out resumes online, those who have written the books like What Colors Your Parachute seem to observe that's not the most successful method of getting a job. Probably the most successful method is through connections and relationships. So you pursue those. Um, so you, you, you work on making yourself, even this is a skill, making yourself more employable. Now, in terms of counsel, uh, I'll use, this is my, this is my, if I, if somebody talk about life verses, Proverbs 21.5 might be mine. The plans of the diligent lead to advantage. The one who is hasty comes to poverty. If a person just wakes, if you tell a guy, when you wake up in the morning, go find a job, what's, how's he going to do that? What does he need? He needs a plan. What are the skills that he has? What, what are the companies? Research the companies. How is he going to spend his day? He needs to plan that day. And it's an unstructured life looking for a job. If you're working for UPS, like Brian's dad did, you don't have to really try to figure out much about your day. It's all set for you. By the way, there's another factor. Some people aren't cut out for the salesman, do whatever you want, you know, figure it out all day long and it'll somehow get done. That's another factor. But he needs a plan for how he is going to pursue this work. Um, another issue that's going to come up is when a person, they've lost their job. And again, sometimes it's their own fault. I've had a counselee came in for a struggle with pornography. He said he was looking at work because his wife had the home computer locked down. I admonished him. I pleaded with him. What do you think happens? That week he gets fired. He gets caught. Like two days after I admonished him, he gets caught. He is now experiencing a trial that is something for which he's guilty. He's unemployed to his own fault. Or I would even say quitting a job, getting mad, pouting, walking away from a job when you have a family to provide for, when you have no new job, is an act of folly. Okay, but you've done it. Now what are you going to do? Are you going to sit and mope and be a sluggard and feel sorry for yourself? Or are you going to respond well and say, I was a fool. And now by the grace of God, I'm going to be diligent in pursuing opportunity and pray God's mercy upon me. Uh, I like in, in Ruth, which is mine tomorrow, where in Ruth chapter 2, verse 2, when Naomi goes out to glean, uh, she says to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. You get that? What you're praying for is you're like Ruth going out praying that God will give you favor in the sight of somebody. It's not just get your skills together, your resume together. You say, I need God to provide a Boaz, not a husband, but Someone who will let me work there and glean so that I can come home and fulfill my responsibilities to feed my family. And you plead with God for that. So it's not just the mechanics of it for a believer. And it's also a realization you are just as dependent as Ruth and Naomi. And you need God's provision. Um, there's another, I've already mentioned Proverbs 28:19. There are warnings in Proverbs about people who are in haste to make wealth. Haste to get rich. How does Proverbs say you get rich? Hard work times skill. 
there are get-rich-quick schemes of various kinds, and I'm going to tread lightly on this one for now. I'm, I'm not even going to read all the words I wrote on the page because it might make you mad to hear me say them, some of you, I don't know. But I think many multi-level marketing schemes are get-rich-quick schemes. By going to your friends, family, and church members, you can get them to buy this stuff, and suddenly you're really well off. I mean, mathematically, pyramids can only go so high, but there's stress with that. And if anybody tells you they can, you can make a lot of money without working very hard and without having any great skill, they're trying to circumvent the means that God has given in Scripture. How do you make money? You become really good at something. You, you can't go to one seminar and become really great at stock trading or anything else, right? I mean, how do people who have stand-before-king skills get that skill? It's a God-given ability with lots of training, education, experience, mentoring. And so one comes along and says, you're going to make $7,000 a month, and I can tell you everything you need to know in an hour to do that. Danger, right? Uh, the same deal is, and it's only going to take you a little bit of time, you know, just your free time in the evenings or something. Beware. God's way, and, and part of this is even the way God has designed economy. Why is... Like a friend I have who's an intellectual property attorney. Why is it that I'm sitting at lunch with him, and he gets a phone call. So is it okay if I take this? Yes. Ten minutes. He says, I've just paid for my lunch, your lunch, and my mortgage this month in this ten-minute conversation. Why was the person on the other end willing to pay him that much money? Because he provided something of real value. And we can think of it in concrete terms. If you could, with your hands, build a car, or you're building a you know, a table or whatever, but your labor is producing value. So the person who's getting it says, thank you. I'm so glad you worked for me because your hard work and your skill has benefited me tremendously. That's how God wants you to make money. And again, hard work, time, skill. And if you try to circumvent it, something's going to go wrong sooner or later. Gambling is the supreme example. Dream a dream, you know, all the... And, and sadly, our culture has been damaged by people who think they're more likely to get rich by gambling or some get-rich-quick scheme than actually the way God has said it happens. Now, all you have to do is look around and see there are plenty of people who have gotten rich through that. Right? You've got all the entrepreneurs, you know, when Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and these guys, they didn't take money away from us. <laughs> they had stand-before-kings, stand-before-the-UN type skills, right? They produced a product that people were eager to buy. And people buy it because they benefit. We want to be that at whatever level, be it as an entrepreneur or otherwise. Gambling is folly, as the people from Nevada hopefully will agree. Of course, California, Indian casinos, everything else. Okay, that's making money. Now, spending money. Again, people come and they say, I'm running out of money, which is kind of going to run over to the debt topic as well. Uh, it could be, it's a wife, and she's got six kids to take care of. Her husband's a sluggard. She doesn't have enough money to make ends meet. This is innocent trouble. And, but again, she can be a bitter, angry, nasty wife, or she can entrust herself to God in the midst of that. With, with many of these things, it's not just outward either. The Proverbs has practical wisdom. It's a heart issue. Does someone have a passion, even on the provision side, to do whatever it takes to take care of their family? Or do they have a passion for their own comfort? Uh, do they see the provision for their family as a way of honoring God? The same thing with budgeting. And this, 
obvious heart issues in terms of spending. Living in a culture that makes an idol of, of stuff, that you know, seeing the person who may be on food stamps, but then they've got an iPhone 4S, and the 5S comes out, and they just can't stand any longer, and they're going to do whatever they have to get to the new iPhone, and yet they have credit card bills and, and the, the consumer culture. And so there's a heart issue, and if the heart issue isn't dealt with, no amount of money will make them content. Uh, Philippians 4, 1 Timothy 6, the, the issue of contentment. But then also, back to my verse I love, Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead to advantage. And the one who is hasty comes to poverty. I don't think I'm stretching it too far to say the person who just goes about life without planning and then is discouraged because they cannot accomplish in life the things they want, who do they have to blame? This is not innocent suffering because of their past. They are guilty. Uh, in budgeting, you have people who say, you know, we're making ends meet, we're making ends meet, every month we just barely make ends meet, and then my car needs new tires. This is not a shock, or the insurance payment came due for the car, and oh my, this isn't fair, we, we were doing so well. No, you weren't, you were deluding yourself. The wise sees evil and hides himself. You know, that, that if you're gonna make a tower, Jesus says, you count the cost ahead of time. And so a budget is a plan to spend your money to the glory of God. And part of the premise being that God will give you what you need and you need to be a good steward of it. But the same thing works exactly the same with time. Why do we not get all the stuff done we should get done? Why don't I have time, you know, why doesn't somebody have time to read their Bible, pray with their spouse, serve the Lord? It's not because God has cheated you out of time, it's because perhaps you've been unwise in the use of time. For many people, God is providing adequately, materially, and if not, it may be they have responsibility to change that like I just described, but just to make a plan, but the plan also has to be followed. Uh, I can't compel someone to use Quicken or Mint.com or a, an Excel spreadsheet for their budget, but I can come pretty close to saying it's sin to go in debt and not pay back, which is where you're heading. And it is you know, the wise thing. What does God want you to do here? <laughs> he wants you to live within your means. And so some people have a sense of they lack the ability to do this. We can offer to help. Sometimes it is really just the nitty gritty. Sometimes they have no clue what they're spending in, in terms of counseling. It's a matter of let me guess for you because I've done this several times with people. Uh, the Dave Ramsey material, the Crown Ministries material can be helpful. There's a little sample family budget in the back that you have there. Um, but teaching people when things are tight to make a plan, and then the plan does no good unless you follow the plan, which means you have to keep records of what you spend. If you say, we're going to spend $75 a month on all coffee, food, entertainment, because that's all we have, and you don't keep track, it's really a useless plan. And what I find about the, those who are hasty come to poverty is when you try to help people budget, they're like, I just don't know where the money goes. We make all this money, and yet our credit card bill keeps going up, and our, our house payment is only this, and this is all I spend. And they, they cannot figure out, like there's this giant hole that hundreds of dollars or maybe thousands of dollars a month is going through. And the way you're gonna figure that out is you write down everything you spend, and you keep track of it, you measure it against a budget. But then on the heart issue, can, am I do, can I spend this to the glory of God? 
Am I content with what God has given me? Have I bought into the lie that having more stuff is going to make me happy? Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? And I have an iPhone S and it's going to be obsolete in three months. It will never satisfy. So just learning self-control. Also in this area, it's giving, which is also a heart issue. I personally would find life easier if there was a verse in the New Testament that says, if you can give 10% away, gross or net, I don't care what it would say, you can do whatever you want with the rest. <laughs> don't you wish it was that simple sometimes? It's not. How much belongs to God? All of it. All of it. Uh, we have principles in Proverbs 3, give to the Lord from your first fruits, which isn't just give him whatever happens to be left over, which is often nothing. And by the way, how many people are failing to give because they don't plan their money well, because they're not content? And so missions, the church, suffer for that. And they suffer the bless not having the blessing of participating in what God is doing. So, to, but this is something, kind of like Brian did a great job describing the tension in Ecclesiastes. To me, one of these tensions in life, his is the, the life stages and it passes by, but how both with your time and your money, you're always in tension. And learning to live. Counselees would like you to again, just tell me what to do. And I, that's back to the legal. I can't tell you from the Bible if you give 10% away, that's good enough. And for some people, there's such a mess, 5% might be a sacrifice. And for other people, 20% would be easy. There's the complication. If you're deeply in debt, to go into more debt to give probably is a bad idea. You've got to deal with that mess you made. But there's a constant tension that there's no simple solution to in that there is overwhelming need of our poor brothers and sisters in other places we should care about. There's need within our church of people who are really struggling, where you've got the guy, and God did not give him the patent attorney brain or the neurosurgeon brain. He's, he's going to be a handyman using all the ability God has given him, and it's always going to be a challenge for him and his family. And can we help out? Uh, there's going to be, you know, again, mission projects you could support, all these things, and your own lifestyle. How many cars? How nice a car? How nice food? And, and I really think it's something we're just going to live in perpetual tension over. You know, same thing with time, right? How can I play golf when there are people I could witness to? Not on the golf course. I guess you could try to witness to the golf course people, but we've got these tensions. It's a heart of worshiping God, caring for those in need, and it's never going to be easy. There's going to be a tension there. Big challenge in counseling is someone who's married to someone who will not control their spending. Um, it's tough because husband, I mean, sometimes it's a husband who is very selfish, and he must have the new car, the new toy, and the wife is concerned about buying decent clothes for the kid. Sometimes it's the other way around, and it's a wife who is spending on clothes, or sometimes it's things for the kids she thinks they need, but not staying within a budget. I would go back, I mean, it's not just control, it's not just stop doing that. It's what's in their heart that's causing this behavior. I've had a case where a wife was overspending because she was embittered against her husband working all the time and not paying attention to her. It's not an excuse. It needed to be repented of on both sides, but just 
cutting up her credit cards. You know, someone who's determined to spend money in a marriage is going to find a way to spend the money. I've seen people apply for credit cards the spouse didn't know about. I've seen people literally sell the silver at the pawn shop so they could buy the other thing they wanted. So addressing the heart or just the heart of thinking, I need this stuff to be happy. Um, and then debt. Uh, debt is a great one for over here. Most, much debt is the guilty past, isn't it? Sometimes you may look back and realize, I didn't know I was wrong, but now looking back, I was foolish. The person who in 2008 was barely getting by renting, but the housing market was just going crazy. Everybody they knew was buying, and the bank would lend to anybody. And so they bought the $600,000 house on a $3,000 a month income, or whatever it would have been, using the low initial rate loan and all the tricks people could use. And now that house is worth $400,000, which is better than $300,000 it was worth two years ago. And sometimes all that person can do is confess, I was a fool. Uh, something, it's, it's later in the notes, but I'll mention it now in terms of debt. The, the Psalm 37 says that it's the wicked who borrow and don't pay back. And we as Christians should take very seriously our obligations. Psalm 15 verse 4 says, The righteous man swears to his own hurt and keeps his word. Which means, in my interpretation, and this is not wisdom to me, this is imperative command, if you're making $100,000 a year and you can make your house payment on your $600,000 house that became a $400,000 house, you keep paying because that's the promise you made. You would not have written the bank, you wouldn't have taken on another $200,000 to pay, well, you know, it went up to a million now, I'll share that with the bank, I don't think so. You took on that responsibility, you may regret it, you keep your word. On the other hand, and this is something I had to think through quite a bit, that, and it actually comes from Proverbs 6, if, if you want to look at it, where I would talk about cosine. What was the last scripture, excuse me? What did it say? Psalm 15, verse 4, and Psalm 37 something, <laughs> it says the wicked does, borrows and doesn't pay back. Uh, Proverbs 6 is interesting, because what I've found so many cases of where you have somebody, and I'll just take the house as an example, I guess back to the principle in debt, my principle of debt is, Avoid it, get rid of it, and if you have to take some on, put yourself in a position where you will never be unable to pay. Very low risk. Okay, so if I'm going to borrow, if I'm going to buy the half million dollar house, I want to put 30% down, 25% down, so that even if the market dips, I'm not upside down. That's why often you know, buying a car puts people in trouble. You buy the car for $25,000, you drive it for three hours. Now it's worth $21,000, and if you lose your job, or you have buyer's remorse, you know, or you realize you, you've overdone it, now all of a sudden you've got a $4,000 debt and no asset. So the whole, to me, the, the principle of the borrower becomes the lender's slave in the book of Proverbs is, I don't want to be a borrower, and I especially don't want to be in a position where I have a debt I can't even pay. Now thankfully we live in a situation where I don't go to prison because I can't pay it, or I'm not made a slave because I can't pay it, but it's still a shameful and bad thing. But what do you do now? Okay, you have a regret about the past. The guilty regret 
where if you can pay, it is you respond well and you keep paying even though you realize you were a fool to pay that much money for the house. Or perhaps even what you did is you bought the house for 300, it went up to 600, then you took out a home equity line to pay off the credit cards you ran up foolishly and to buy yourself a new car and to take a family vacation and whatever else. And so if you had just avoided that debt, you'd be fine when the house went back down again, but now you do owe $600,000 on the $400,000 house. You're guilty. You confess your folly, but you respond well and you meet your obligation if you're able to do so. To respond poorly, and I see this, I've seen articles where you say, well, I don't want to pay on something that's worth more than, you know, I owe more on it than it's worth. I'm just going to quit paying and it's the bank's problem. Doing that when you can pay is ungodly. But the situation I've come up with is here's the person, like I said, where they should have never done this. They do not have the capability to pay this. This is a person, again, their income never would have supported this. And now they're upside down. And they were actually trying to follow Psalm 15 and uh, Psalm 37, where I'm just going to keep paying. But you know what's happening while they're paying the mortgage? Their credit card debt is getting bigger. <laughs> Because the bottom line is, you can sit there with the budget with them, and you, you can take their in. I mean, and you could say, I mean, you could go back, work overtime, get better skills. Well, they actually had a pay cut because of the bad economy. And they can't get a job that pays as much as they did before the recession. And so no matter how much you work with them, they've got a $4,000 income and a $5,000 budget. Do you keep paying every month the mortgage until you've run your credit card up to oblivion? I don't think so. And this passage came, I don't, maybe somebody else has seen the connection, I don't remember. But in Proverbs 6, you have a situation of being a co-signer, but it's, it's a similar thing. You're in a mess. So my son, if you have become a surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger, if you've been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught with the words of your mouth, do this, my son, and deliver yourself. Since you have come into the hand of your neighbor, go humble yourself, importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hands, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. What's that saying? It's saying if you've been stupid enough, foolish enough to co-sign, see if you can get out of it legally. <laughs> go beg. And I think sometimes the thing to do is you go to the bank and you say, I don't really own this house, you own this house. And I'm ashamed because I made a promise and I'm not keeping the promise. Now, there can be innocent victimhood. I've been disabled and now I'm not making enough money or you know, I lost my job, I have no income. I mean, there can be some innocent side to regretting the past. But normally it's, I just took on something I couldn't handle. But you come and say, look, I can't pay it. Here's my income, here's my assets. Here are the keys. <laughs> Will you take this house? Will you help me short sale it? You can foreclose it, but I can't keep running up more debt to make a monthly payment to you. And if you can show me anything else I can do, I'll accept that, but I'm stuck. This is not something a Christian does lightly. It's something a Christian does because normally he's guilty and he's having to beg but part of this is, apparently, if you've co-signed and they let you off, you're really off, right? And so if you've been a fool and gotten into all kinds of debt 
and they'll take back their house and they'll let you go, it seems to me that's a legitimate solution for a tragic mess into which you got yourself. Now, positively, which is contrary to the way our nation runs itself, the way businesses run themselves, the way families run themselves, make it your goal to be out of debt. Perhaps for some people, going through that once or twice would tell you, I don't want to be there again. I would rather rent until I can make a big down payment and not be upside down again. I would rather live with less and get rid of my credit card debt. I would rather make sacrifices. Debt is slavery. Uh, when I have the PowerPoint with this, I put up a photocopy of a credit card statement where somebody owes like $13,000. If you make the minimum payment, <laughs> you will end up paying $37,000 and you'll have it all paid off by 2027 or something like that. I mean, look at that if you have such a credit card statement. Um, debt in the Bible is a curse. And so repent of your, if there was folly, again, there could be innocent suffering. You lost your job, you were disabled, that's exceptional. But quite often it's presuming upon the future. Well, I know I'm going to get a raise. I know things are going to get better. Well, things haven't gotten better. You presumed when you took on that loan where it was interest only at a super low introductory rate that you'd be making a whole lot of money later. There's nothing in the Bible that promised you that would happen. Recessions happen. Bubbles happen. Uh, seek counsel. Uh, a method is like Dave Ramsey's snowball, if you've heard of that, where you just kind of pick off the debts one at a time. Uh, I appreciate a lot of what Dave Ramsey says. One thing I appreciate about Crown Ministries, however, is you go on their website and the materials are free. And on Dave Ramsey's website, they're trying to get more money from you. What a lovely goal it is to be debt-free. Everything including your house. Um, is it ever right to borrow money? I wish I could say never borrow. Actually, I can't say that's been my whole life. Something to be avoided. But the principle would be don't borrow if you can't pay back. That's one thing about student loans, right? I mean, a couple factors in student loans. One factor is that because people can borrow money to go to college, price has not been a consideration in college. And so the price of college has gone up much faster than inflation because people didn't care what it cost. They just wanted to get into the right college. And they borrowed the money anyway. And they didn't worry about it. Well, now people are realizing, you know, even for a very fine university, a degree in the liberal arts may have me working in Macy's at the same job I could have gotten out of high school. Um, now, on the other hand, if you've gotten through uh, a fine university, you've been accepted to medical school, and you're anticipating a six-figure income in five years, six years, that may be a debt you can take on with reasonable anticipation of being able to pay it back. And by the way, the idea of people saying, well, just kind of work your way through school. There's nobody in college who can make $60,000 a year and go to school. That's what it costs in most of these schools. But there can be situations where, OK, there's going to be a possibility. In. I mean, this is where there can be tension for some people that want to go to seminary. Well, I say, you got to have a plan to pay the thing off. And trouble can happen. Uh, the same thing would be, I mean, I've already said with a house. Yeah, most of us can't pay cash for a house, but you can pay enough down on your house so that if it goes down in value, you can still get out of it without stiffing the bank or whoever else lent you the money. Um, businesses, et cetera. But, 
just debt to be avoided like a plague. And I've already said co-signing somebody else's college debt, house. That, this is a real example. Talk about past. A lot of times we didn't know what we did when we did it. We had a case, we were doing pre-marriage counseling, young couple, and the, the wife-to-be was in a family where everybody helped everybody else financially, and she'd been out of college and was working for a few years. So she had co-signed on relatives' houses so they could get into houses and they couldn't have gotten a loan otherwise. Well, now she gets married. And now she and her husband want to buy a house, and there's a complication. I can't say, thou shalt not co-sign, or we will put you under church discipline. I can say, the Bible says it's very unwise. It says, I mean, we know. Why do they want you to co-sign? Why does the bank want you to co-sign? Because they don't trust these people can pay it. They're probably in a better position to evaluate the finances of your cousin than you are. <laughs> They've seen the tax statements and the income statements and the assets, and they're like, these people can't pay. I need somebody to co-sign. Do you? And there have been cases where people, then they come to claim, what do you mean? I just, they're just signing. No, they're going to take away your stuff. They're going to attach your income and your assets because you co-signed. Or it will keep you from being able to get the debt you want to buy a house. It's foolish. What's your position on It's a freedom. I, I've got a whole book that has a chapter on that about helping your adult kids. But if you choose to co-sign your kid's college or house, that is a freedom you have. Be prepared to lose all that money. If you can afford to do that and you want to make that decision, it's a freedom you have. But realize that's where you may be going. And realizing if you do it for one, what about the other four? So it's a freedom. I think it can be a great blessing if a parent is well off rather than waiting 30 more years till I die. If I can help you now to get into a house by helping you with the down payment um, or lending you some money at a lower rate of interest. So long as you realize you may never get your money back and it may destroy your relationship with this person, which is another warning. By the way, who gets mad when the money isn't paid back? Who, who gets alienated when your child or your relative doesn't pay you? Who are they mad? They're mad at you. I, I've been there. <laughs> but the verse in Proverbs, the borrower becomes the lender's slave. Do you like feeling like a slave? When they don't pay you back, they start resenting you. They're assuming you're mad at them, but they resent owing you the money. And they avoid you. So it's a risk. So if you're going to do it, be prepared to lose it. Be prepared to give it. Might be easier. Um, beware. But it's a, it's a wisdom issue. There are some godly kids who are struggling, and it's a hard time to start a family. It's a hard time to get married. And if you can help them, help them. That's a good thing to do. There are some who are sluggards, <laughs> and you're wasting God's money, and you're inhibiting their growth. The only time I remember that I didn't consult with my wife on something like that, <laughs> Is one that we we regret till today. I mean, the Lord has helped the, us. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and the exactly. teaching of wisdom is on her lips from Proverbs 31. Only one time, and it's still with us. There's only been one time my wife wouldn't let me do something I wanted. And I'm not bitter. <laughs> I'll tell you about that later. Um, another broad category is preparing for the future, which is also biblical. The ant. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 8, 
says he, she prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. Even the ant realizes that winter is coming and makes provision, apparently. I'm not a great student of ants, but Solomon was. Um, and so there are biblical reasons. It's back to the plans of the diligent lead to advantage. I'm 55 years old. I may not be physically and mentally capable of earning a good living in 20 years or 15 years. So it is wise to make provision. It's planning for the future. The, the, wicked see, sorry, the wise man sees evil and hides himself, the proverb says. And so we, we want to be prepared for things that are possible or likely to happen. And that can be in the short term. Your car is going to break now and then. Your house is going to need better disadvantage of owning a house. When it breaks, you can't call the landlord. You're the one who has to fix the roof. Life is full of these things, not to mention people when they're surprised by auto insurance payments. You have to plan ahead. That car is going to wear out and is going to need to be replaced. Why not save up for one, make a payment to yourself, and plan for the next car rather than the cycle of debt which keeps you from ever being able to save? So you're making plans, then longer-term plans, your kid's college, your retirement, uh, even matters of insurance in our culture. Can I say thou shalt have life insurance if you have a wife and four kids all under the age of 10? I'd say it's advisable to provide for the possible future, which can be done very cheaply. Uh, should you have a will? Well, do you want the government deciding who takes care of your kids and who gets the money you've saved, your insurance money, or do you want to make plans for that ahead of time? So a wise person in the area of finances, and, and this is again where the tension is, well, if I've saved all this money for retirement, couldn't I be using that for missions and just trust the Lord? Well, a little bit back even to the Joseph principle, they stored up the food during the seven fat years knowing the lean years are coming. The lean years are coming. Actually, for some of us, they're here, right? It's not sinful. It's not a lack of trust in God to prepare for likely hard times ahead, and especially things that are just obviously coming down the road. So you, you plan for these things, and you make provision for these things, which means sacrifice now. I can't take that vacation. I can't buy the sports car now. I'm going to have to get by five more years with my old car, whatever it is, so that when the time comes when the church can no longer pay me in my case, or so that when you retire from UPS or whatever the circumstances are, that you're ready for that. Now, do you trust in this? James 4? Uh, the, the, their sin was not planning. Their sin was presumption. Uh, it's not wrong to go to a town, do business, and make money. It's wrong to do so without saying, if the Lord wills. So you, you buy the insurance, and even the medical insurance, right? Oh, we have a man right now uh, who was offered an internship out of state, but he's on a medical plan that only works in California as a sick baby. Do you want to go to another state where if your child needs to be hospitalized, the bills could be annoying? Maybe wise to stay around during the summer this year. You, you're, you look for the things that could wipe you out. You try to make wise provision for them. And then I'll just say a couple of things about investments. Uh, I'll... I've been inspired the fact that Tom was even in this room. I'm going to draw a second time, which would be a record for me. I'll just do it in this corner. Um, it's, a, it's risk and reward, okay, in investing. 
if you want almost no risk whatsoever, maybe I should have Tom draw the diagram for me. Anyway, if you want no risk whatsoever to your money, there actually, there's nothing that's no risk, first of all, okay? Right? There's nothing that's no risk. I, okay, I'm going to put the money in my mattress. Well, if you put your money in your mattress 30 years ago, $1,000, what could you buy? A really nice used car. What could you get now? Actually, the same car, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, <laughs> there is nothing that is no risk. But right now, like super safe, you put your money in a money market in an FDIC-insured account, and maybe you can get 1% on your money. If you want more risk, you put it in the stock market. Average return 7 or 8% in recent years. I mean, it goes up and down, but a long-term average. The negative is, what happens to the stock market sometimes? It totally crashes. So you, you chase a bigger reward, but you take on more risk. It's like the, the principle of, well, the proverb says, the one who makes haste to gain money, it flies away. Okay, people who try, just like people who try to circumvent the principle of hard work times skill brings income, people who think I can get lots of money with no risk are looking for fools to sell investments to. Sometimes these people troll churches. I can, with no risk, get you 10%. He's lying. Part of the tragedy of the last, um, the recession and everything else is seeing situations where a guy bought a house for 250, $250,000. It's now worth half a million. His friend in church is selling annuities and says, go borrow $200,000 on your new equity and buy my annuity, and it's gonna pay you 10% a year, and you're only paying 4% a year in your interest, we both, you're gonna make out. He does it. What happens? Well now, his house is now down to $300,000, so now the house that he would have had $50,000 of equity in is now $50,000 underwater. His income has gone down, he can't quite make the payments anymore because he's paying on half a million. And that amazing annuity that was described. He did not read the fine print about fees and said, I need to get that money back. So, no, you can't see that money for 10 years or you have to pay this 20% withdrawal fee. Beware. It can't be, the only way, you can increase risk without increasing reward, but you can't increase reward without increasing risk. Is that simple enough? But turn on the television and they'll tell you they can beat that. Buy gold. I'm not saying gold's a bad idea. There's risk, okay? If you bought gold a couple of years ago, you paid $1,800 an ounce, now you can't get $1,300 for it. It's not a sure thing. The only sure thing is treasure in heaven. I'll say one more thing about this before I finish, and that is beware, well, beware of financial advisors who are gonna make money in the advice they give you because their incentive is to sell you, not to inform you. And even in churches, I've had Tragic, I can't explain the awful situations the time I have. And then never invest in anything you don't completely understand. If it sounds too good to be true, you're right. Okay. So, to conclude, a couple points. Your goal should not be to be rich, but to be wise. The proverb says, wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare to her. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. To learn to be content, and we trust God to meet our needs, but 
where hope is in him. You can't take it with you anyway. Second, first Peter, the second Peter three says it's all going to be burned up anyway. Uh, whether you're driving a 30 year old Toyota or a brand new Porsche, it's all going to be incinerated. It's not your treasure. And then my favorite point about finances is just thinking about Christ is that according to Proverbs, we said, what's the most foolish thing you can do? Sign for somebody else's debt. And yet the scripture says, Christ became surety for our debt. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. Now thankful I am that we have a Savior who took on our debt and did not just make us debt-free, but enriched us with his righteousness. And that's what makes us rich, not all the stuff I've just been talking about for the last hour. <laughs> Let me pray. Father in heaven, we exalt you for your word, which things that were written 3,000 years ago or more are completely true today, as they were true then. And even today, we see nations and individuals rejecting that wisdom and suffering the consequences. Help us to live wisely, but help us most of all not to covet, not to put our hope in fading riches, but to put our hope in you. Help us to be responsible where we've done things foolishly in the past to respond wisely and act with grace and wisdom. Help us to encourage others and have compassion on those who suffer. And we do thank you that though we were the worst of debtors, we were and pay, we had a debt we couldn't even begin to pay, a 10,000 talent debt. Our Savior has not just removed the debt, but he's enriched us. We thank you for that in his name. Amen. Amen. Copyright 2014, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.